Hi, everyone. A quick announcement from me. This is a reissue of a wonderful episode we did about addiction. And I am re-releasing it in honor of a friend of mine who is dealing with their own addictions at the moment. And I thought this would be a perfect time to re-release it. And it's been on my mind and it was a wonderful talk. So I hope you enjoy and we'll be back with a new episode next week. You can't get addicted if you don't learn that the drug helps you do something. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Maya Salovitz, a neuroscience journalist and author who specializes in mental health coverage with a particular focus on addiction, drug policy, neuroscience, and media criticism of reporting on these issues. Her new book is Unbroken Brain, Why Addiction is a Learning Disorder and Why It Matters. And here's the interview with Maya Salovitz. Hi, Maya. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to get you on. Your book is called Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. And listeners will know that addiction comes up from time to time on the show. I myself am a former addict, so we will get into a lot of detail on that. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops, and he thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandfather, and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. 
So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. I really like this parable because I feel that it is incredibly relevant for addiction. Addiction is a lot of repetitive behavior. And the more you repeat the behavior, the more likely you become to repeat the behavior because of the way human learning works. So that is a very true statement about the nature of what will happen if you continue to repeat a behavior. Yeah, I first heard it in some 12-step meeting somewhere, and it kind of knocked me on the head at that point because it was so clear to me that... I don't even know that I had been feeding the bad wolf so much as the bad wolf had been eating me recently, but it just is a very straightforward to me like, oh, if I take these sort of actions, then I'm going to have good things happen. And if I don't, then I'm going to continue to get more of what I've been getting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like all of these things, it's it's oversimplified, but I I think it's it's really important to realize that, um, yeah, your brain becomes what it does. And the more you, you know, um, repeat an activity, the easier it gets to do that activity. And then the more likely you become to repeat it. Now, this is great if that activity is exercise, um, or being kind or, you know, that kind of thing, but it is not so great if it is harmful drug use. Right. Absolutely. So let's start with the core premise of the book. And I'm just going to quote you here. You say addiction is a developmental disorder, a problem involving timing and learning more similar to autism, ADHD and dyslexia than it is to mumps or cancer. So talk to me about what you mean by that a developmental disorder. Sure. So, I mean, if you think about developmental disorders, they tend to have several things in common. Um, the first one is that they tend to affect like specific kinds of learning. So with autism, you have a problem with social learning, but you don't have a, necessarily have a problem with other types of learning. With dyslexia, you may have a problem with reading, but not with other things. So it's about a specific thing. Um, it's also the case that if you have one of these conditions, they tend to start at a particular phase in life. So there are three important phases of brain development in human life. And the first one is prenatal. The second is zero to five. And then the third is like adolescence and young adulthood. All of these disabilities tend to start at specific times. So autism and ADHD start in early childhood, whereas you wouldn't see schizophrenia or addiction generally until adolescence or early adulthood. So that gives us a clue as to kind of what's going on in the brain in relation to these things. And the other thing I mean when I talk about addiction as a developmental disorder is that learning is critical to addiction. You can't get addicted if you don't learn that the drug helps you do something. Because for one, you wouldn't know what to crave, so it would be kind of hard to buy it, right? Um, right. And um, secondly, if it doesn't give you comfort or pleasure or some sort of relief, you're unlikely to be repeating it. Exactly. And so you talk about this being a learning disorder, and the way that we tend to think of addiction is it's either thought of as a disease, which is a, a com- it's probably the more common paradigm this day and age, or a moral failing. And both those things are confusing, and I agree with a lot of what you say about that. And we'll get into that in a minute. But talk about the implications if addiction is a learning disorder and not either a disease or a moral failing. Well, let me speak to the disease thing first. 
in the United States and worldwide because of our influence, um, this disease idea has really taken off. I don't mind if you call a learning disorder a disease, but the way we've seen addiction as a disease has been deeply problematic because basically we argue in public that addiction is a disease, meanwhile we criminalize people with it. We also argue in public that addiction is a disease and the treatment is meeting confession and prayer, which isn't how we treat any disease or learning disorder. So um, what has happened is that the dominance of the 12-step paradigm for addiction has meant that we end up trying to argue that addiction is a disease while treating it as a moral failing. And this mixed up mush of things um, really kind of makes the disease idea problematic when it wouldn't have otherwise been. So there's that. Now, the moral failing business is just, you know, I mean, when you see people with addiction desperately trying to stop and then relapsing over and over, it's kind of hard to think that they're choosing to lose everything and to, you know, be in these dire straits because they're having so much fun. Anybody who sees addiction knows that this is not driven by everything so fun, so I'm going to give up all the rest of the good things in my life. Like, that just isn't what happens. So, you know, so that point of view um, is outdated and not especially useful. So I see the learning disorder idea as kind of a way to really get at the complexity of addiction, which is that, like, it's not about you being a total zombie and having no control over your behavior the way some of the extreme disease models present it. But it's also not about, you know, freely choosing um, with ultimate freedom the way some of the moral models present it. What happens when you learn a habit is that it changes the way you react to things. And when you learn in the way that addiction is learned, what it basically does is reset your priorities just the way when you learn to fall in love, which is another learning process, interestingly, when you learn that, it shifts your priorities. And that means that you will make very different decisions. Like if I get a new boyfriend or something, I might get interested in something I'm completely uninterested in normally, right? I think that when we bring learning into it, we understand the way addiction really is and the way it really appears as opposed to these sort of idealized pictures of sin or disease And I'm saying disease as in the disease model that we are stuck with, not the idealistic medical disease model that you might have in the absence of the history of the 12-step thing. Yep. Let's explore that a little bit further because the learning piece makes sense to me. I think we're going to need to go into a little bit more what you mean by that. But let's start with the statement you just made about you learn to fall in love or you learn to be addicted, which the second one I understand, and at the same time... My reaction to alcohol and drugs was very prominent from the get-go, right? The minute I tried it, there was a very strong reaction there. And so help me understand. Have you ever heard of Love at First Sight? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, so it's, it's, the thing is that, like, um, there are a lot of people who take, let's say, an opiate. And it's like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. This is totally amazing. Oh, I love this. You know what? I don't want to ruin my life. I am never going to do this again. That is actually the most common reaction to taking a substance that is ultimately blissful. That's the healthy reaction to it. So 
the thing with people with addiction is that you're not addicted at the moment that you have that euphoric response. You only become addicted after you continue to repeat it despite negative consequences. So while you can sort of put the start of your addiction at that kind of love at first sight moment, the actual process needs to happen before you are actually addicted. Does that make any sense? I agree. I think what I was driving at was something that you explore in the book also, which is that these substances are often used as a coping mechanism. And so the addiction may begin, the process of becoming addicted to that substance may begin when you try that substance. But for lack of a better word, the seeds of that addiction have very likely or very possibly been planted before that. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, given that the vast majority of people who take even the most addictive drugs do not become addicted, we have to look at what's going on with that person beforehand. You know, if your life's already messed up and you get this blissful experience, you are far more likely to say, yeah, I want to give up what I have because what I have is horrible um, for, you know, and this is, you know, this is something that seems better. Also, like, especially if you have any kind of, you know, social anxieties, drugs seem to solve them in a variety of ways. One is that they are tend to be taken in social settings and other drug users tend to welcome you as long as you use drugs, which is unlike most social settings, right? And so there's that bit that makes it easier. There's also just the pharmacology so that if you're a person who's very anxious, like alcohol or opioids might take the edge off. And if you're a person who's kind of understimulated or, or depressed, like a stimulant might, you know, really make you engaged in things. And so when you see that you can use these substances to control the way you respond to the world, if you're dysregulated, they're going to be way more attractive. Is that the developmental part of this? Yeah. You know, we all start out with some kind of initial temperament. You know, we might be shy or bold or, um, you know, oversensitive to stimuli or undersensitive to stimuli. All of this stuff genetics is, is going to give us. And then we have the environment where, you know, you may get tons of love and support. Um, you might not. You might have some predispositions that are really extreme um, that, you know, may lead to mental illness in, in certain situations. And, and those things are all kind of percolating during your development. And, you know, if you, let's say, like, you know, in, in my case, I felt really different from other kids from very early on because I was extremely oversensitive and also, like, I was reading very early and got, like, labeled gifted. And so I just, my interests were completely different to the interests of other kids, basically. So I just sort of got absorbed in ideas. And that would have been fine if I hadn't then decided that I was a bad person because I couldn't really connect with people. So that sort of internal decision of seeing myself as bad led to a cascade of things that ultimately sort of led to depression and probably then led to addiction. And so the developmental piece is, is sort of how all of these things interact over time in this kind of spiraling fashion um, that creates the complexity of the conditions we end up seeing in people. Yeah, you say that the role of learning and development in addiction means that cultural, social, and psychological factors are inextricably woven into its biological fabric. And I really like that because I've always thought that the disease model of alcoholism or addiction was, particularly when you treat it, as you mentioned, via moral mechanisms, it didn't make any sense. And that this felt like the word I would have used is a syndrome than a disease or a thing. It's this complex 
a bringing together of all these different factors that happen to equal addiction. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the same is true of really all developmental disorders and, and all um, psychiatric problems, because all psychiatric problems are neurodevelopmental disorders. Like you don't suddenly appear fully fledged um, person with schizophrenia without the developmental history that gets you there. Like it's not like even though the symptoms might suddenly appear in your 20s, it's not like your brain hasn't been going down that path for a long way. Right. And so people have historically left development out because it is so complex and individual. Um, but, you know, reductionism can sort of only get us so far. It's great to, you know, like say, okay, look, we can get this rat to press a lever and it will take a ton of coke. Well, yeah, you would press a lever to take a ton of coke if you had nothing else to do. Right. Um, also, so, you know, so it's, it's like we have to bring in, you know, we've got to start with the reductionist stuff, but then we got to bring in all these other pieces like genes, like culture, like timing, and then see, you know, how this changes things. And, and you know, a lot of uh, neuroscience and, and, you know, psychiatry is now heading in this direction and trying to, you know, now that there is big data and you can calculate these things with so many variables, we're being able to bring this stuff in and, and look at it more scientifically than, you know, we could in the past. One of the implications of this and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we already covered it in an episode with Johan Hari's, uh, his book, Chasing the Scream. But one of the big implications of this is drug exposure alone doesn't cause addiction. So the drug itself is not the problem here. And our efforts to get rid of all the drugs is really a misguided and futile attempt. And we may talk a little bit about why punishing addicts doesn't work later. But I did want to just reference that for listeners. If you're interested in that sort of thing, Maya's book definitely talks about it. And our interview with Johan Hari does also. I'm going to stay a little bit away from the policy implications of that and focus more on the the personal implications. But I did want to make sure we got that in there because that's a big part of what you talk about. Yeah, I think, you know, um, basically, if addiction is compulsive behavior that occurs despite negative consequences, and we've spent the last hundred years of policy trying to fix it with negative consequences, it's pretty ridiculous. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how, um, you know, it's kind of like trying to stomp out OCD hand washing by like banning soap. Now, you can have a harm reduction effect sometimes if you like ban a particularly harsh soap, right? But you're not dealing with the underlying problem. Um, but our supply side efforts have basically done the opposite. So we push people from, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, which are certainly dangerous, but at least you know the purity in the dose, to fentanyl where, you know, we're just getting so many deaths. Yep, we could probably spend two episodes on the failure of American drug policy and all the ways that it's misguided. But again, we'll save that for for a different time. But I do want to talk about that idea, though, that this is a learning disorder that is characterized by a resistance to punishment. Let's talk about that, because this idea of having to hit bottom is very prevalent and I'll have to say, like, I still, there's a part of me that feels, well, I have an interesting experience with this. So let, let me have you talk about that first. Sure. The problem with the idea of bottom is that it can only be defined retrospectively. So let's say I'm a person in recovery and I'm happily in recovery for several years. I believe that the thing that preceded my recovery was my bottom. Now I relapse. Suddenly I have a new bottom. Now I relapse again. Suddenly I have a new bottom. I don't know what my bottom is till I'm dead really, yep. right? 
Yep. Um, so it's a useless concept scientifically. It's also a really moralistic concept because it, it kind of means that you have to hit this point of extreme degradation before you can stop. And that is just not what the research shows. If you just ask yourself this question, who's more likely to recover? A doctor with a thriving practice who's just gotten into trouble or a homeless doctor? And it's quite obviously the doctor, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. We know this instinctively that, like, if you have more resources, you are going to be more likely to recover just for obvious reasons. But the whole idea of hitting bottom tells us to take resources away from people and to try to continue to inflict negative consequences until there comes some point when this thing that is defined by not responding to punishment suddenly decides to respond to punishment. Would you love to work up a great sweat at home for less than the cost of a studio class? The Peloton bike can help you do that. Men's Health calls it the best cardio machine on the planet. And I'll tell you some of the reasons why. First is its size. With its compact four foot by two foot size, the Peloton bike can fit anywhere, no matter how, well, not anywhere, but almost anywhere, no matter how small. And there are thousands of rides that you can take live or on demand at any time, all for less than the cost of a single studio class. You don't have to commute. You don't have to make reservations. You just get on the bike and you get in better shape. I love the fact that there is a variety of themes, difficulty levels, training programs that you can experience at any time. And I love how it tracks what you do. We talk about good habits, building them. And one of the things is to keep track of them. And this bike does that for you in a wonderful way. So Peloton is offering a limited time offer. Get $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike. Get $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout at home. Go to OnePeloton.com and use promo code WOLF to get started. That's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and use promo code WOLF to get started. OnePeloton.com. Get a great workout at home. As many of you know, I spent a lot of time traveling for my previous job and being on the road in hotels. And one of the things I know is it is so hard to maintain your well-being when you're traveling. At Westin Hotels and Resorts, their entire reason for being is your well-being. And that's why their wellness offerings are curated with one thing in mind, and that's you. You can eat well, at a menu that's crafted with fresh ingredients. They have an on-demand fitness gear lending program that allows you to pack light and stay fit. You need some running shoes? You can get them. And they have their heavenly bed that helps you conquer the day by giving you a restful night. And this bed is really pretty amazing. I've actually tried to craft any home bed after it. I looked for a while to see if I could buy their actual bed because it is so good. And all of it is curated just for you so you can rise. Explore at Weston.com. Again, that's Weston.com, a member of Marriott Bonvoy. Here's the rest of the interview with Maya Salovitz. 
The first time I got sober, it came as a result of some pretty serious negative consequences pending, as did your sobriety also at least seemed to be motivated initially by some negative consequence. So I, while I recognize the idea that having to hit a bottom is a fallacious concept because I actually got sober again many years later after I had a relapse and I didn't hit any sort of bottom and and got sober. So I don't totally believe in the concept, but I'm curious about what then do you believe is the motivation that turns people towards recovery if it's not avoidance of negative consequences? I think this, you know, like if people continue using despite losing their families, losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing their loved ones, you know, practically losing their lives many times, you know, this is a very inefficient way of spurring recovery, (laughs) right? And it is quite likely to end up spurring death instead of recovery. So you're saying it can work in some cases, but it's a pretty bad way to make it happen. Well, yeah. And I mean, what do you mean by work? Like, I mean, for me, I got arrested and I was facing a horrendous sentence because um, it was New York in the 80s and I had a lot of cocaine and we had the Rockefeller laws. I kept using for another two years after that. So, you know, and my life was constantly getting worse during that time. I was using during the peak of the AIDS epidemic in New York City when 50% of people were infected, 50% of IV drug users. Like what I think happened, um, you know, certainly I was you know, cognitively terrified and aware of these potential consequences. But I kept using because I felt like I just couldn't survive any other way. I just couldn't see that I had other options. And I think recovery comes when you begin to be able to see the options. And and I like to use this analogy of like, let's imagine you're a prisoner in a cell and there's a rug on the floor and you have no idea that like under that rug is like a trap door that you could just walk out, Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that that's there, you can't escape. But once you know that it's there, you can. And you can't make somebody sort of suddenly see the light through negative consequences. Like sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And you can't make them suddenly see the light by like being loving and kind because sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. It is a very complicated process that's highly individual. I tend to prefer the loving, supportive, hopeful approach because A, it does less harm, and B, it is more likely to work on something that doesn't respond to punishment generally. But, you know, there is a mystery as to how human behavior change occurs, and it's not a simple thing. But I do think, you know, insight is sort of necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah, it is a fascinating subject of why some people get sober and others don't. It has mystified me uh, the whole time that I've been in recovery. I think it ultimately was at the bottom of the complete undoing of my belief in the spiritual type of God that that is often talked about, because I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's, It's just a mystery. And what you said there is interesting, because I was pushed to go into treatment because of some seriously negative consequences. But you're right, it was the sudden appearance of hope that probably kept me going or got me interested in trying. So that is a different way to look at that situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I I was writing something today about um, learned helplessness, which is basically this, you know, paradigm that they use for studying um, depression. um, And you can create this basically in animals by doing horrible things to them like unpredictable, uncontrollable stress. 
Um, and basically when you do this after a while, the animal just stops struggling and says the hell with it. And at that point, when you want to test an antidepressant, you basically see if it keeps the animal trying longer, right? Mm -hmm. And drugs that are effective at being antidepressants keep the animal from giving up, right? But once you get to that point of like learned helplessness, that's where a lot of people with addiction are kind of living. And without giving them hope, without giving them insight and a sense that they're worth it, it's very hard to get them to change. And it's going to be, you know, I mean, I think we need to recognize the role of trauma here. Um, if you've been severely traumatized and drugs are the only thing that allows you some moment of peace, you are not going to give that up until you find some other way of managing and so like a lot of how harm reduction works is by helping people learn other ways of managing before they give up the drugs when they're not yet ready to do so so that when they do they have a way of you know soothing themselves basically yep and we recently had an episode where we talked about trauma and the role of trauma or you know what's known as adverse childhood experiences on later life behavior addiction being one and and we had we had Gabor Mate on who who talks a lot about this but i think what you just said there is really important which is that a lot of people are using addiction as we said earlier as a coping mechanism it's not seen as the problem by us in the beginning because it's actually a wonderful solution to an existing problem at least for a period of time and so i really think that's an important piece of this which is how do you cope with life in the absence of a substance as a matter of fact i think that's probably 95 percent of what recovery seems to me to be about is those coping mechanisms yeah. And I mean, you know, um, in the past, sort of under the disease model, the idea that people who are still actively learning or people who are still actively using could learn was like, oh, no, they're still active. They don't learn anything. And that's just not the case. Um, harm reduction programs have shown this over and over and over again. Like people do use clean needles. People do use safe injection facilities. People do begin to learn ways of coping before they quit. So it is simply not the case that active users can't learn and can't change and can't make improvements to their life. So, you know, it's it's kind of weird that we have this idea that, like, we should just take everything away before we help people get stuff that's going to allow them to stay sober. Yeah, harm reduction has just always seemed to me to be just an eminently common sense way to look at the problem. Like even, you know, regardless of whether it's going to stop somebody or whether it's going to help somebody towards recovery, it just seems like, you know, harm reduction is just a good idea. But given our misguided policies, often we don't do that, although we seem to be doing more of it these days. Well, and I think like, you know, here again comes a problem that is unfortunately part of the um, 12 step ideology, which is this notion of enabling. And, you know, it's the idea that, like, unless you remove all the support from somebody with addiction, they won't change. And again, we've seen that that's not the case. But the biggest opposition to harm reduction has come from people who believe that you are enabling the person to inject or to do whatever it is that you don't want them to do by actually helping them stay alive. Right. And I just find the moralism in those arguments to be really appalling because it's basically like 
we think you're better off dead than addicted. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is pretty bad logic. And as somebody who uh, thankfully escaped HIV and AIDS, but did end up with hepatitis C, I am aware of that issue pretty intimately. Yeah. No, and I mean it's it's like you know, and and um, Hep C is just much harder to prevent via needle exchange than HIV because it's just a much hardier uh, virus, unfortunately. Right. Another area that was very interesting to me that I'd like to talk about is this idea of there being two types of this is probably in the right term. I'm just going to use it mechanisms that different types of mechanisms that are happening in addiction, and and you refer to it, or a researcher referred to it as the pleasures of the hunt versus the pleasures of the feast. And then you also refer to it as liking versus wanting. Can you walk us through that? Because I just thought that was fascinating. Sure. No, I mean, I, I find this really interesting, too. And I think um, it can kind of teach us a lot about how we behave. Because so if you think about it, um, you know, pleasure isn't singular. Um, like you have pleasures that are about desire and, and about, um, you know, I mean, sex is really the obvious one here being excited and, and um, having desire is pleasurable. It can also be pleasurable to be satisfied in that. So like the hunt would be the desire part and the feast is where you are uh, satisfied and satiated and comfortable. So wanting is like that desiring bit and liking is like the satisfaction of that. Um, and, you know, sort of these very primitive models of addiction where it's all dopamine, 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 never made that distinction and it didn't make any sense because if you constantly escalate wanting, it becomes severely non-fun. I mean, who wants to live <laughs> in a permanent state of unsatisfied desire? That's like hell, right? Yep. Um, you know, you could permanently, you can um, escalate contentment and satisfaction all you want. You may not be very motivated to do anything, but you will be happy. Um, but if you constantly escalate desire without satisfaction, you know, that's like the Rolling Stones. It's not going to be good. So, you know, we do need to distinguish be between these things because they refer to different motivational states and they are, you know, I mean, cocaine is sort of a classic example of a drug that escalates wanting rather than liking. And you can just be doing coke and doing coke and wanting and wanting and wanting and you're never satisfied and it ultimately becomes very unpleasant for that reason. Opioids, on the other hand, are sort of more satiating drug and although they can escalate wanting as well. Um, but, you know, it's like this is why it is a lot easier to do maintenance with opioids than it is with stimulants because if you have something that you can get to a satisfactory level of, it's a lot easier than if you have something that's constantly escalating desire, right? And by um, maintenance, you so mean things like methadone as, as an example. Methadone, buprenorphine, um, heroin itself possibly, um, yeah. Um, so yes, that's, that is what I mean. And I think like, you know, when we understand that addiction is defined as compulsive behavior despite negative consequences, we can see that maintenance can be recovery because you might still be physically dependent on a maintenance drug, but you aren't having compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. So you are not in active addiction.
I don't need to tell you that life is stressful these days. I don't need to tell you that it's hard to focus. I don't need to tell you that you spend too much time staring at screens, multitasking, and binge watching. We all know this. So what do you do about it? Well, one thing that we talk about on this show very often is some sort of practice of getting quiet every day, and that's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one rated app for meditation. We know all the benefits of meditation. It's been known to slow down the release of stress chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline, which gives you some much-needed relief, some calm. They've got a whole library of simple guided meditations with all kinds of different themes and other resources to help you relax, like sleep stories, music, and more. Right now, One You Feed listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash wolf. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash wolf. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash wolf. That makes total sense for cocaine, for people who have been down that road. You know, it is, as you describe, an escalating cycle of never being satisfied and chasing that satisfaction for long and awful periods of time. Whereas, as you said, with with heroin or other drugs, there is a satiation point where you're like, all right, I don't want any more until you're no longer at that satiated point. Right, exactly. And so what's the role of wanting then? Is it just that as you come down from that, now you want again because you're not there? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is, again, why maintenance works, because if you just stay at a steady state level of the drug in your system, you don't escalate either wanting or liking. You are just, you know, normal. What about alcohol? Where does alcohol fit in that? Alcohol is complicated because it's such a dirty drug and it, it does, um, and I mean dirty in the sense of that it, it activates multiple complex things as opposed to being very simply targeted to something. Um, so, you know, initially alcohol acts like a stimulant. It has this biphasic effect. So first you feel kind of excited and up and then you feel kind of tired and sedated. And a lot of people sort of make a mistake with drinking where they think like, oh, if I drink more, I'm going to get more of that excitement, but you actually get more of the sedation. <laughs> so one way to learn about moderation is to realize this and to not drink more when you think you should. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, like, yeah, so alcohol is is kind of both. And that um, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, a drug like uh, naltrexone, which blocks opioids is probably more useful in alcohol than it is in opioids because with people with opioid addiction, they tend to be chasing a really strong opioid effect and completely preventing that, completely preventing even your natural opioids from working may not be so good for some people. Yes. But with alcohol, where you're not blocking the direct thing and there's other things going on, um, it may be more manageable and it may also um, you know, help with moderation. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I explored this with someone not too long ago about was naltrexone a good idea? And the concern was, yeah, it's blocking opioid receptors. And this person is wrestling with depression to start with. So is this really the best approach? No, yep. and that's a really bad idea. No, I think, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because um, I think um, naltrexone and, and Vivitrol, which is the long-acting version of it, um, I think they're very similar to antidepressants in that some people they're going to work great for and actually make their mood better, and then other people they're going to be a disaster for and make them kind of suicidal. 
Um, and you really need to figure out which group you fall into before you take something that's going to last a month, right? Right. Um, and you should not be coerced into, you know, taking anything like this. The other thing that we really, really need to know about uh, naltrexone is whether Vivitrol actually increases overdose death risk during the, the month or two after you stop it because it could potentially sensitize the receptors, and we really don't know this yet. Meanwhile, we do know that the other two drugs, methadone and buprenorphine, cut mortality by 50% or more. And so, you know, um, if I'm making a choice, and they also don't block endogenous opiates, I'm going to tend to think that they should be the first choice. So let's now wade into the territory where the knives are going to come out from someone somewhere listening or <laughs> who knows, but we're going to, we're going to wade into the sensitive territory of 12 step programs and are they effective? Are they useful, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm going to just state a little bit of what you say in the book and then you can agree or disagree. And then we can kind of go into the discussion and Sure. You talk about how a you recovered from a twelve step or via a twelve step program. So there is there is that piece, and the fact that twelve step programs have been inserted into our national drug policy in a way that is very injurious. And I, and I think that's a point that hopefully a lot of us anybody can agree on, which is that you know making. 12-step programs, the place where you just push everybody who's got any kind of problem against their will is probably not a great idea. So with, with that in mind, tell me what else, you know, kind of your, where you are with, with the idea sure. of 12-step programs today um, in your life and in general. Yeah. Um, I think that 12-step programs are absolutely wonderful self-help for people who find them helpful. And the only way to find that out is to try it for yourself, basically. Some people are going to go and they're going to find a warm, welcoming community and feel as though they are part of something and they get the social support that they need and it helps them, you know, remain sober and avoid relapse and, and all that good stuff. Other people are going to go and say, this is moralistic, this is religious, this is spiritual, I don't like this, I don't feel comfortable here. Um, and it's, it's just not their thing. You know, with any other condition, we would not accept 80% of treatment being a program that involves taking moral inventory and turning your life and will over to a higher power. Like, we would consider that alternative treatment at best, <laughs> and we would definitely not mandate it for anybody. And the fact that we do mandate it for people and we do have large percentage of our treatment program saying that, you know, this is the only way to recover. It's an outrage. That doesn't mean that 12-step groups as self-help are bad. It just means that it should never have been married with medicine. And, you know, AA itself says that in the eighth tradition that, um, you know, we shouldn't be paid for doing 12-step work and teaching other people about the 12 steps. Well, that's exactly what goes on in 80% at least of American treatment centers every day. And so a lot of, you know, AA old timers and, and, uh, you know, NA people are like, yeah, like we should never have accepted this kind of weird marriage because, you know, in, I, I like to use the analogy of like cancer treatment. Like it may be that your faith is the only thing that allows you to like show up for all that horrible chemo, right? 
but you don't ask your faith-based support group leader for what dose of chemo should be the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> you ask your oncologist this, right? And you work with your doctors on the medical aspect and you keep the faith stuff, you know, um, as the support, you know, and, and this doesn't mean you can't be as religious and as believing and as spiritual as you like. It just means that, you know, modern medicine is different. And while we can have these things support and complement each other, when we try to mix them, it does not work very well. And the other problem um, that occurs with just the 12-step um, ideology is that it kind of has been used to encourage this very insulting and demeaning form of treatment where, you know, you get counselors saying, you know, when is an addict lying when their lips are moving, you know, and where you get like all this like stuff aimed at forcing you to hit bottom and, you know, sort of forcing you to feel like you're immoral and bad. And, you know, for women and minorities, that can be really harmful. I'm sure it's harmful for some men, too, but it's, like, especially harmful for groups that have historically been powerless. We don't need to be told that anymore, thank you very much. We need to be empowered. Yeah, for sure. I agree with with a lot of that. Talk to me about medicine, though, and the role of medicine in a learning or developmental disorder or in a, where we said earlier that most of what constitutes recovery is a means of coping with things, which is not exactly a, is that a medical thing, how to cope with something? I mean, again, like, you know, this gets to our weird disciplinary boundaries. Um, (laughs) I think that, you know, I mean, is cognitive behavioral therapy simply teaching? Is good teaching therapy? Like, (laughs) right. Yep. To me, like that ends up like being semantic, right? But if, you know, I think the reality is that if we see people with addiction as students who need to learn better coping skills rather than sinners who need to be forced to repent, um, <laughs> we will have a much better power dynamic in our treatment centers, right? Yep. And people will feel a lot better about themselves. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, yes, a lot of what is needed for recovery is stuff that is needed for mental health in general. And, given that most people with addiction either have trauma or mental illness or both, you need to figure out what the person is trying to cope with and what skills they lack and then help them find them. And and that's going to be a really different process for different individuals. I mean, like giving, you know, a CEO job training and a GED is not very sensible. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the ones I've met might, I mean, it might help is all I'm saying. Well, right. Okay. Let's not, not go there. But current the, um, company that I might know at this time in my life, not, I don't mean you guys, whoever you are who's listening. <laughs> I'm teasing too, but like the, um, the point just more being if you, you know, again, if you have like no education and no work history and no home, you're going to need very different things than if your primary problem is like, depression and, um, you know, you've got a home and you've got a husband and you've got kids and, you know, all these other things. Um, it, it's really going to depend, you know, like giving depression treatment as the primary approach for addiction to somebody who's homeless 
well, that situation is pretty darn depressing, right? It's right. unlikely to, so, you know, so you, you need to be sort of sensible and, and, you know, this biopsychosocial thing often gets tossed around. But if you actually recognize that and, and actually really enact that, then you will provide the appropriate things for people, um, you know, as needed. And I mean, I think this is why we often get this ridiculous thing where, you know, oh, if you're going to go on methadone, you must have counseling. Well, um, the data doesn't support this and it's expensive. Why don't we just give counseling to the people who want counseling? <laughs> you know, um, it, it just like, it, it seems, it seems, you know, again, it's, it's sort of this moralistic controlling thing going on. And, and once we understand that people with addiction are people like any other people and they have the range of goodness and badness that everybody else has, um, you know, we can start, you know, recognizing humanity, treating people just like people and figuring out, like, why are they behaving this way? It's not because drugs do something bizarre to you. Um, <laughs> it's because people figure out ways to, like, deal with what they have going on inside them. And, and we need to, like, help them rather than, you know, keep trying to harm them. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to kind of wrap the conversation up. I think what you said there is, is so important. And I think that I couldn't agree more that treatment for these things needs to be, it's a, it's a cliched word, but holistic, right? That yeah. I've always thought that about depression too. It's like my depression responds to a lot of different things. And I would say my addiction does too. It's, it's a variety of factors I have to deal with for that to be effective. So being kind to each other is always a, a good message. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. The book, again, is called Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. And I'm sure this is going to get some people stirred up, which is always good. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks again for having me. Okay, thanks. Bye.